0: History Salem, a podcast that tells the stories of Salem's dynamic and incredibly diverse history and the people who made those stories meaningful. I'm your host, Rebecca, licensed Salem City tour guide. The witch hysteria of 1692 and 1693 is certainly the most well-known tragedy in Salem history, but unfortunately it's not the only one. The Great Fire of Salem in 1914 changed the city in numerous ways and was unfortunately one of several major urban fires during that era. As urban centers grew in the United States during the 19th century, including large factories and tenement buildings for their workers, it became difficult to stop fires once they began. Many buildings were constructed largely of flammable materials such as wood and sat so close to one another that fire easily spread. There were a series of great urban fires, including in 1866 in Portland, Maine, 1871 in Chicago, 1872 in Boston, 1908 in Chelsea, and of course the 1906 fire in San Francisco, which started after the damaging earthquake occurred early that morning. In Salem's fire, about one third of the city ended up burning or 253 acres. In its path, the fire destroyed 35 factories, produced $20 million in property damage, which today would be $520 million, and lost 18,000 people their homes. Like the other fires leading up to it, the Great Salem Fire is considered a conflagration, which has a variety of different definitions, but they all point to a fire that is large, threatens life, and carries from building to building. It took 12 hours for firefighters to control the fire. The Great Fire of Salem began the afternoon of June 25, 1914, which luckily was a Thursday. I say luckily because as I read over the damage done by this fire, I'm thinking how lucky it was that it was a work day and that it started during the day when most people were awake. The fire began in a storage shed at Corn Leather Factory at the corner of Boston and Proctor Streets, in the section of the city where much of the industry was located. At 1.37 p.m., someone pulled the number 48 firebox, as the initial fire led to a series of explosions that soon caused it to spread. Corn Leather made what was called tip polish for patent leather shoes, and had acetone, amylacetate, alcohol and celluloid stored in that shed. There had been a long drought leading up to the fire as well, and it was almost 90 degrees outside when the fire started that day. The Salem Fire Department responded immediately, but it only had four steam fire engines, and once the blaze spread, they needed help almost immediately from area fire departments. Peabody, Beverly, Marblehead, Lynn, and Swampscott quickly sent their engines. And as the hours passed and the fire continued to spread, many other communities all over Massachusetts sent their trucks as well. In total, 25 fire engines came to fight the fire, and the militia were called in early to help get people to safety and keep them away from the line of the fire. Some of the difficulties that were encountered by these fighting the fire included the fact that there wasn't uniform water pressure from hydrants in different parts of the city. Hoses from different cities had different types of hydrant connectors, and the blaze was so hot that firefighters couldn't always backtrack to get to the hydrants to make adjustments in water pressure. Some of the industrial buildings were so surrounded by other buildings or by a large body of water, such as the South River, that it really wasn't possible for firefighters to get to them. Large companies like Nomkeg Steam Cotton Company had their own crew and equipment, Who did their best to protect all of Namkeg's many mills, but unfortunately they were destroyed. Here and there, buildings made of concrete remained unscathed by the fire, but many industrial buildings were at least partly made of wood and contained flammable chemicals. The fire spread across the city in an S-shape, narrowly missing the historic buildings on Derby, Essex, and Chestnut streets. Some of the mansions on Lafayette unfortunately were destroyed, as was the Salem Hospital on Charter Street. Not until around 2 a.m. was the fire finally under control. All that night and the next day, the militia turned their attention to finding food and shelter for the 18,000 Salemites that had been displaced by the fire. Different people surely experienced the days following the fire in different ways. In one respect, there was an opportunity for common sympathy, Wealthy families lost historic homes on Lafayette Street, one of the loveliest streets in town, just as new immigrants who worked the factories lost their homes in the burnt tenements. Friends, relatives, and strangers welcomed the displaced into their homes. Montaigne Perry wrote in the Salem Evening News that, quote, it was a time of mutual sympathy and helpfulness, end quote, and later reflected that, quote, in the face of utter desolation and disaster, Salemites of every age and condition lifted their heads valiantly and faced the future with a courage that was nothing less than marvelous. End quote. After the immediate need of getting people to safety passed, though, some longer term system of relief and support had to be quickly designed. It is this that I want to focus on briefly here. But before, I also want to acknowledge that the class and prior connections that a person had leading up to the fire certainly impacted their experience of it and of the aftermath. The wonderfully detailed descriptions that I've been reading about the relief efforts are not written from the perspective of Polish immigrants newly come to Salem, but the brisk, appreciative voice of Progressive Era reporters and municipal officials. The words efficient and scientific describe workers and relief systems, justice and equity are invoked as goals, and comparisons of those relief workers and their systems to, quote, well-oiled machines abound. Keep in mind that the progressive era in America, which occurred from about the 1890s to the 1920s, was a time when popular culture was so taken with Frederick Winslow Taylor's ideal of scientific efficiency. This love of efficiency took many forms, but suffice it to say that it encouraged experts to systematically design procedures for nearly everything, From manufacturing processes, to infant formula, to the way that mothers organized their kitchens. Why does this context matter to many of the written accounts of the fire? The authors, consciously or unconsciously, are fascinated by the people who designed the relief operation and how they designed it. And that impacts how they write about what happened. Honestly, I do have a pet affection for the progressive era and its sometimes hyperbolic descriptions of efficiency as the highest virtue. But this aspect of the story of The Great Fire is partially catching my attention in this moment because of our own society now, both national and international. We have in many ways been in the grip of a relief effort on a huge scale due to the pandemic. We all doubtless have opinions on the ongoing conversations as to the best way to get people protective equipment, medical care, compensation, and vaccinations. The crises in 1914 and 2021 are quite different, and so are the cultures in which they occur. Still, when I read Montaigne Perry's words from the Salem Evening News, it strikes a chord with me of sympathy for both time periods. what worker, who lived through those awful days and nights at relief headquarters, when real sufferers besieged the place sobbing, "For God's sake, why don't you do something about it, will ever be able to erase the heart-rending scenes from his memory?" End quote. He notes that, quote, "Every effort seemed futile compared with the appalling need." End quote. And so it likely was when you focused on one individual volunteer's efforts. Nonetheless, people did get help, and a system of relief was quickly organized, working out the kinks as it went. 30,000 volunteers, he reports, contributed. Perry writes that, quote, a coal dealer became in a day the biggest furniture dealer in New England. A trained social worker found himself in charge of a clothing business of such proportions that it might have excited the envy of any dealer in greater Boston. A machinery manufacturer assumed control of a food market, beside which the famed Quincy market shrunk to insignificance." You see, 18,000 people needed food, clothing, and, as buildings were being repaired and rebuilt, house goods. It's a little more difficult to imagine now because we are able to buy goods from so many big-box stores and online retailers. But back then, they couldn't just order thousands of tables or stoves all at once. Some of the demand required companies to actually increase manufacturing. As people waited to establish their households, some factories did leave Salem. But many stayed, and people began to get back to work. The landscape of the city changed, though, and I'm looking forward to telling you more about that in the follow-up to this episode, which I will release on June 25th, the anniversary of the fire. The way that a traumatic event like the fire is remembered by a community changes over time, and of course it differs with different perspectives. I'll enjoy sharing more of the story with you then. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and have a wicked good day. In case you're interested, the sources I consulted for this episode are Salem as Global City by Aviva Chomsky, In Salem, Place, Myth, and Memory, published in 2004 by Northeastern University Press. The Salem Fire Relief by Montaigne Perry, a collection of reports from the Salem Evening News, printed in 1915 and available online through Salem State's Digital Commons. The Conflagration at Salem, Massachusetts, and the Destruction of the Mills of Nomkeg Steam Cotton Company, June 25, 1914, reported by Charles H. Smith of the Associated Factory Mutual Fire Insurance Companies, also available online through Salem State's Digital Commons. The Week in Review, The Great Salem Fire, from the July 2, 1914 edition of the Journal of Education. I hope you'll join me for the follow-up to the Salem Fire on June 25th. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dynamic History Salem.